Hey girlfriend, it's time for Can We Just Talk About This? Where real talk meets real life in the world of fitness and health during perimenopause. I'm nutrition, strength, and hormone coach Corey Jackson, and I'm chatting with my brilliant friend, coach and exercise physiologist Dr. Mandy Para. Whether you're in your 50s like me, or your 30s like Mandy, we're here to navigate the ever-evolving journey of life, motherhood, and perimenopause together. So pull up a seat, get comfy, and let's talk about this. Hello and welcome. This is the first of, well, what I hope to be many chats among girlfriends experiencing perimenopause. I've been talking about the menopause transition for about three years now, about as long as I've been aware that I've been in perimenopause. And what's become really apparent to me is that women don't have ready access to information about what's going on physiologically during this phase of life. And what I've learned over the course of my life is that information truly is empowering. My goal is to empower you to embrace the changes you're going through with grace for yourself, grace in your relationships, and in your health and fitness. For many of us, it's not easy, this menopause transition, but knowing we're not alone somehow makes it less heavy. This episode is essentially a getting-to-know-you chat. I ask Mandy questions, and she asks me questions. We are truly hearing each other's stories for the very first time with you. So just some highlights here. I briefly share my birth stories. I have two adult sons, and I'm sure you'll be able to tell that some of the experience was hormonal foreshadowing, so to speak. And Mandy leans in to learn from my experiences, my symptoms, my lifestyle that has led to some of these symptoms. And then also to celebrate the menopause transition as an empowering life passage. In the end, our hope is that you find community here and support, that you learn something that you can use to make your perimenopause easier. All right, enjoy the show. Welcome, Mandy Para. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to visit with you today. Yeah, yeah. This is going to become a weekly habit. <laughs> so. I just wanted to to get to know you and let our audience get to know you a little better because you are a truly an expert in the stuff that we're talking about. Let's just chat a little bit through an introduction. Let me know how, just tell me about your passions. Tell me about your profession and what you do, what you know. Oh, wow. So I, I really feel as I was thinking through my past to start to pre- predict and say all the things that I'm done in my lifetime. I feel like it's been a really, like most of us, a windy road to finally get to where I sit today. And I'm really excited about all of the things that I was able to experience until I finally decided that science and women's health was really the place that I wanted to land. So I started out as an undergraduate at Hardin-Simmons University, so a really small school mm-hmm. in Abilene, Texas. And I played volleyball there, so I was a student athlete. And I really got involved with the strength and conditioning team there. So I really, I loved volleyball, but the weight room is where I really started to to thrive and ended up not playing a whole lot. um, But they kept me on the squad because I really loved pushing everyone in the weight room. 
And so I've started That's to awesome. realize, well, this, maybe this is actually where I'm, I'm like, if it's, maybe this is where I, I want to stay. So I started working with the other athletes and I started following the strength coach around all the time <laughs> and let me be more involved in the weight room and eventually helped me to start coaching and helped foster me through coaching. And so I needed an internship at the end of my, uh, my degree. And so I ended up going out to South Carolina, to Charleston, South Carolina, and worked as a strength coach for a military school. So it's a, a school called the Citadel. So okay. it's a, a D1 school out there. And it was actually the first female to be able to work in the weight room. Oh, that's awesome. Citadel. Yeah, they have a, a long history of, of male leadership and um, such a rich military history there. Mm. So I learned so much <laughs> through my time there um, as a strength coach. So um, I love strength coaching and decided to get my master's in strength conditioning. So I went to Baylor University and started my master's. And that's where I really started getting involved with research. Mm -hmm. So I worked in the weight room a ton and then spent the rest of my graduate assistantship starting to understand nutrition and strength conditioning research. Eventually decided that if I wanted to have a, a long-term career, that I probably should find something that I can use my mind and not just my body. And so I uh, started doing research and decided to do my PhD. Starting my PhD at, at OU in metabolism and body composition and met amazing um, people there and then ended up stopping for a little while. And I was a manager at a lifetime fitness for four years. So I took a little four-year sabbatical, if you will. And then went back to KU, University of Kansas, rock chalk. In, uh, with, in murder unit recruitment. I'm a true neuromuscular and, and muscular physiology person, for sure, is where I finished out. And within there, there's become, there's been a lot of passion in coaching and understanding women. And I know that kind of runs parallel to, to your passions. It's mm -hmm. really understanding and helping women see their full potential. And not only that, but understanding that we, we're really complex. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. That's so here's the windy, windy path. Yeah. I always say it's like a circuitous route. There's no such thing as a linear travel <laughs> through, through transformation, through health, through life. It's always winding and circuitous. And wouldn't it just get boring though if it were straight? <laughs> if it were a straight line? Absolutely. You have to have the ability to be able to adjust and adapt and all the things but and so, I feel like that's where we grow too yeah yeah when tell me about when and where you met your husband and when you got married and your family life all that okay we have a, a pretty fun story i guess everybody thinks their story is fun all right but we have a, a fun story we met online while i was doing my phd okay so we met through an online dating app and it was probably my second week on the online dating app and i said i am done with this <laughs> online dating is not for me. I went on one really terrible date uh, but, and it was a night, nightmarish date. And then the next date, my husband asked, was like, I really want to take you on a date. I really think you're, you'll be fine. We're going to make this work. Um, and I said, okay, but I'm deleting the app and that's, this is, we're done. So I went on a date and he was the amazing gentleman and wonderful man that, that he still is. And totally just fell in love with them. We were engaged within six months and then mm -hmm. married less than a year later. Oh, wow. And so 
We have three babies now. Callan is at eight. And then we have a three-year-old and a eight-month-old. So we have a a very busy, busy lifestyle right now. For sure. Wouldn't trade any of it, though, would you? No, not at all. Not at all. So have you discussed how you met Wes? Have not. Let's do it. I love to get that. We got married in 1994, a long time before dating apps. Uh, So (laughs) we met at church. It was one of those things that I decided after everyone has horror stories about dating and um, relationships. So I decided after a few of those, that was it. I'm done dating. The next person I even consider dating, I'm going to have to, you know, this is it. We're done. (laughs) I'm not looking around anymore. You know, <laughs> of course, I, as a young person, you don't always stick to those decisions. And so I did date a few people. Uh, but and Wes and I met in church and uh, it was a um, it was love from the beginning. But every, just like every other person, you have the stuff you have to work through. And but because we knew it was love at the, the beginning and your the passion of youth and everything, we got engaged right away. And then we broke up. Oh, no. And, and then we started dating again and then got engaged again really fast. And then we broke up. <laughs> so, we did that a few times. And finally, third time's a charm. We um, realized one day that we're dating, but it's not, it's totally casual. We're not, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of pressure. There's not a lot of stress. We're not fighting. None of the stuff that caused us to have friction before. So we realized, okay, this is working. This is actually working. And we took the time though. And, you know, as opposed to getting engaged within two weeks, we got engaged within six months. And then we were married within a year. So our stories mirror a lot in, yeah. in that respect. But this was before. You made him work. <laughs> I did. But <laughs> angel, right. Well, it's funny because it started completely opposite of that. I asked him out. So I love that. Yeah. I've always been like, who cares about these societal roles, gender roles and all that stuff? That doesn't matter. If I see something I like, someone I like, I'm going to go after it. I had a bit of a masculine energy as as far as stuff like that. Your personality, I would not expect anything less than you say, I'm going to go for that. And I did. And it broke. (laughs) But it all works out in the end. And we've been married for 29 years. This last May, we'll be married 30 years in 2024. We have two sons. Nathan was born in 96. He is 20. He'll be 27 in September. He is a practicing architect now. And Luke, our youngest, just turned 24. He is a, a mechanical engineer. And he's just started in his first Big professional job. He graduated this last May. Yeah, it's been an interesting trip. The thing that I noticed on marriage has just been fun. We love to work together. We love to play together. Obviously, it's you don't, you're not successful at anything that isn't everything that you're, that is worth it is going to be hard. And so there's, you know, you have to work on it for sure, but it's never been. It's never been hard to work on. We've both have wanted it the whole time. And you, it's fortunate to learn early on that it's not 50 50, it's 100 100. <laughs> That's what right. my stepdad told, uh, told us. Good advice was that it's never going to be 50 50. You can't just give half of this. You have to give your whole, your whole self to it to make it a full 
to make it work, to make it a go. And I heard recently it's not even 100 and 100 because sometimes you don't have 100% to give. And if your partner comes in and says, I'm at about 75, I don't have enough energy to give more, then that's when you pick up the slack. And those are fun little life lessons. I am going to resist the urge, though, to be the sage advisor (laughs) as much as possible. Well, I was going to say that I actually, I think you should be because I feel in even just being having spent some time with you and Wes together, I love your, just your relationship together and the way that you oh, interact absolutely. together and just your genuine care for each other. And even the way that watching the way that you guys handle any kind of conflict. So it's always fun to watch. And I see you in not in a, a sage advisor, but obviously as an amazing mentor and a, mm. a great person that mm. just you are fierce. You go get what you want. And so I always love hearing your side and your advice. So being a chapter behind you in um, motherhood and in those, in all of the, the big things, um, I definitely look up to and look forward to hearing all of the things that all of your experiences and how they play a role in, in the person that you are today. And I, I want to hear, I want to hear more about what got you here. So I know a little bit about your story and I know the nuts and bolts of it, but how did you arrive here and tell you your passion for women's health? Okay. Okay. Wow. Back to the long circuitous path. (laughs) I always say that I was a late bloomer. I do everything backwards. We got, we, we weren't early. We didn't get married early. I was 25 when we got married. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's as far as today's standards go, that's not necessarily that old, (laughs) but. I I grew up in a small town in Texas in the 80s. I was in high school. I graduated in 1989. So if you ever saw Friday Night Lights, that was Mm -hmm. very similar to my upbringing. Girls were raised to get married, even in the 80s. That seems like not that far long ago. I'm used to hearing that story from my mom's generation. But that was actually my experience, too. There were some girls that were pursuing interests in chemistry and taking anatomy and physiology classes in high school. I took the very most basic thing that I had to have, the requirements to get out of there. My main focus and interest was in music. So I was a, and I was a trumpet player and I was classically Mm -hmm. trained and I wanted to continue doing that. The school that I chose to go to was Dallas Baptist University. And I was studying instrumental music education, although my number one passion was for was for performance. But again, being convinced by society, my dad, other reasons, I was convinced to do education because it was going to be a steady gig. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And really now there's been there's a lot of research that, that has come out that shows that it wasn't until blind auditions started occurring in orchestras that women started having actual representation. And now it's about a 50-50 split in the music world. But before, when the conductors and the people that made the decisions to let someone in could see the musician, then it was mostly, it was all men, really, maybe one or two. That didn't break until about the 70s or 80s. That we were talking about. I know it didn't that infiltrated so far. Oh gosh. Yeah. Music. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's gonna be hard to believe, but women in this country could not get their own credit card without their husband signing for it until the seventies. 
Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it goes so deep. It's so layered. And I know we'll get into that. But anyway, so I grew up in the 80s. And my, it was one good thing that my dad said, you should go to college, yes, but at least you should study this. And it didn't really help that when I broke up with my long-term boyfriend of two and a half years, that my dad told me I really liked him and he would have been the guy I would have chosen for a son-in-law, period, for for my sister or for me. (laughs) It was one of those things that helped me realize, okay, I'm fighting an uphill battle hill, but battle here, but it is totally worth it. And I knew that I wanted to stand on my own two feet, no matter what. Um, after a year at Dallas Baptist studying instrumental music education, the powers that be at that university decided to cut that major and focus wow. mostly on choral programs and music programs. And that makes sense for the the type of college that it was. Sure. And my mentor and my band director was pink slipped. And I decided this place is no longer for me. <laughs> and I moved to Austin without a plan at all. And so that's where I have put down roots. That's where I met my husband and life just started to take off. We got married poor, broken, young, <laughs> and just built our way up. And he was driving home from work one day and just said, when we're talking, having a conversation, we both, we had moved to a suburb but by that time, bought a house, had two kids. One of them was already in elementary school. The other one was getting ready to go into elementary school. And he says, have you thought about going back to school? And something resonated with that one statement so deeply that I didn't even have to think about it anymore. I decided that was when I needed to do that. But this was after I had two babies, obviously, and they were both kind of challenging uh, pregnancies. Luke's delivery was, the the delivery was complicated. Um, Nathan was born by cesarean section, but I decided I wanted to have Luke naturally or vaginal birth after cesarean. And um, yeah, but I didn't do anything to prepare myself for that at all. I didn't, um, there was no extra core work. There was no extra strengthening. There was no massage of the tissues, none of that stuff. And this was also at the very end of the episiotomy craze. Yeah. (laughs) The labor was long and difficult. And I don't usually tell this story, but I guess it's good to go ahead and get it out here. The main reason I don't tell it is because if there are women still having babies, I don't want them to know about this (laughs) because I don't want it to change their opinion about their motherhood. But it was a 30-hour labor. Yeah, 30 hours. And I was on Pitocin and it wasn't really working except for the fact that it was causing both mine and the baby's blood pressure to spike and crash. And we both ended up with a fever towards after the 24-hour mark is when my water broke and the 24 hours later, that's when you have to start worrying about infection. So we both started running a a, a fever and they gave us Tylenol to bring the fever down. But that caused our blood pressure to crash and I started losing consciousness. So then they gave me ephedrine to bring me out of that. And uh, finally, when it was time for the delivery, they gave me the episiotomy. And it tore all the way through, stem to stern. Corey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On top of that, we always, we thought Luke was going to be a girl. The same doctor that 
that also told us that Nathan was going to be a girl. <laughs> he didn't get his strong suit. I don't think it was a strong suit. <laughs> In his paperwork, he says, now we don't determine sex with the ultrasound anymore. And he was using the same machine and everything. And I should have known. But especially fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I actually believed him. <laughs> so Luke was nameless for about 30 minutes. But we did come up with a name quickly. You know, in my drug-addled state, we finally were able to land on something. And But anyway, he was. we went home after your normal, typical time in the hospital. I'm still healing. But then my healing took a turn and I started developing a uh, fever and oh, I just, I would, I told the doctor, I just felt toxic, like everything infected. Like I felt like I had something going on in my blood and in my mm-hmm. digestive system. It's not uncommon for a woman after that kind of procedure to deal with GI issues, particularly constipation. This was pretty severe. I was afraid to push because of all of the damage that had occurred with the episiotomy. And, um, but then I I finally did force the issue when uh, my son's pediatrician was in the same building as my obstetrician. So I Mm -hmm. showed up after a um, pediatric visit to the doctor's office without uh, um, announcement, without an appointment. And I heard him saying from the background, what's she doing here? She already gave birth. Why is she here? <laughs> and the nurse finally talked him into letting me back. And so he he diagnosed me with post-eclampsia, which I'd never really heard of really? until that I point. Heard of that. Yeah. And and then we had to, he did a check of the incision and the stitches and found an abscess. Yeah. So we went directly to the hospital, which just walked across the way. Fortunately, my stepmom was with me. So she was able to take mm-hmm. care of Luke and pick up Nathan from daycare. And I was readmitted. And the procedure that we agreed on was a, they removed the, the stitches and abraded the, the incision site three times a day for cleaning. And oh that we did that for Three to five days. I can't remember now. It's been so long. And then they sewed me back up again. And then I had to recover in the hospital. So I was in the hospital for 10 days after Luke was born. He was two weeks old by the time I was readmitted. So he couldn't stay with me, obviously. Um, So at this time, Wes was working at Dell, which was a 45-minute commute for him from where we lived down I-35, which is the most traversed, highly trafficked highway in the Austin area. And I think it gets, it lands in, lands Austin in the top 10 worst cities for traffic. Yep. It's that one right there. Pretty regularly, at least annually. (laughs) So he was having to, there was no other way to get there at that time. So he was having to drive back and forth, taking Luke and Nathan, taking Nathan to daycare, taking Luke with them to a babysitter. But then he took a, and this was also the first year of the Family Medical Leave Act that being okay. extended to the fathers. And so he took time off. And so he was able to take care of the boys at that time and come visit and this and that. He tells stories about having bottles of sanitized water with the little packets of formula that were like, look like a liquid IV, but it was formula. And um, he would mix that up in the car, in traffic, and Luke would be, we didn't have a passenger side airbag, so he'd have Luke back facing 
in the passenger seat, driving in traffic, feeding him a bottle. And it was, oh so it was a hardship for all of us being yes. that happening. But I use that, I have to look back at that because I think of it as a breadcrumb for my hormonal symptoms and the different things that I go through and my sensitivities even now. So that that's part of why I think it's important to talk about your birth stories and to talk about your talk about your sex life, talk about all of those things because they do impact your hormone environment. Um, but after that, I had a lot of weight gain. I wasn't really fitness minded while I was having babies at all. There was a, a compulsion to lose weight, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I did start a few very ill-advised crash diets, taking supplements, right. taking fat burners, eating about 800 calories a day and working out twice a day, trying to lose weight. I did lose about 15 pounds in a matter of three weeks like that. But then that set me into a clinical, what they called a chemical depression, not clinical. There was a period where I was getting five hours of sleep a week for months months like that and this was not because the baby wasn't sleeping this was me Mm -hmm. i wasn't sleeping um and then i would have run a low-grade fever as if i was having um an immune response to whatever anything and um i would look at my life and look at myself and i know i'm not sad i'm not depressed so whenever um, a doctor recommended that i get on antidepressants and a sleep aid I thought, that's weird because I'm not depressed. That's Mm -hmm. why he said, no, this is a chemical depression. You're experiencing endocrine disruptions. And I didn't know what that meant at that time at all. And I'm also a victim of white coat syndrome at that point. I'm not asking questions. And so I just went along with it. At that point, I thought that antidepressants were a crutch. They were for people that Mm -hmm. couldn't handle their stuff, that didn't deal with their emotions and their issues and had to have a prescription for them. But I took it and I'm so grateful I did uh, because it was night and day, the difference and the change. And so when I was in that course of treatment was when I discovered actual true intentional workouts and good balanced nutrition. I just, I found a plan uh, that you might be familiar with written by Bill Phillips called Body for Life. It changed a lot of people's lives, mine included. Mm -hmm. And I learned how to modulate intensity. And it was the first time I ever really strength trained and ever really tried to get strong and and build muscle. It's the first time I really recognized how important muscle is to metabolism. At that point, it was, had always been, how can I get small and how can I get light, just like a lot of women in my generation. That was the main thing that we were looking for. We're always on a diet. There's so much eating disorders in that generation. And, but that was the first, I started eating so much. I couldn't, (laughs) that was also during the eat five to six meals a day and balanced protein with carbohydrate and very little fat. And those things are not necessarily things that I would advocate for now with my Mm -hmm. experience in my education but they are, that's what really changed my life. It's a common story in fitness because of the good I experienced from it. I went into it. I was fascinated with nutrition and metabolism and how exercise impacts metabolism and that impacts nutrition and the things that you need to do for your body when you're working out and this and that. I went back to school and I ended up with a bachelor's degree in biology and a minor in biochemistry. 
completely different from music, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Out of music. And I love that your brain works like this, right? And because mine is not this creative, this beautiful, you're looking to be. I wanted to it? be an orchestral musician. Yes. See? <laughs> and I don't even know how to say it. And then you move to the hard sciences. I just love that transition. And I always appreciate people who can move in that spectrum. I feel like my brain started as science and it's pretty much geared toward <laughs> science forever. And so what a neat transition. And you got to sit with a great combination to bio and biochem mm -hmm, mm -hmm. together. Now, did you stop there? I feel no. like you have more training. I okay. Do. What else? What came next for you? So in the undergrad experience, I started thinking I wanted to go to medical school and become a doctor. When you want to help people, that's the place that people go. I didn't always stay with um, fitness and kinesiology. I tried it, but then I felt like I was surrounded by um, the football jocks and the, yeah, the meat. Thank you. Thank you. You said it, not me. I call myself a meathead doctor. I uh, love me some meatheads. So it's okay. <laughs> Looking in, looking through the curriculum, I had already had a taste of biology and I'd had a taste of some of the hard sciences and the rigor was actually interesting to me. And, but then I started looking at the curriculum for kinesiology and physical therapy and it was stuff like taping for injuries and a yeah. couple of things that just, I, when I looked at it on surface value, I was like, I'm in my thirties. I want my money's worth here. Make it worth my while. And so I changed gears and went the medical school route. But very smart. I learned, I land somewhere in between here though, because I bounced off that MCAT like three times. I took it three times and <laughs> didn't, no one was interested. That's <laughs> that. Thank you. Not your round. Yeah, exactly. And so after I graduated and I'm waiting for responses from medical schools, I started talking to my undergraduate research advisor who was in the nutrition department at my alma mater. And she convinced me to pursue a master's degree in nutrition so I could work with her on a on some thesis research as a post-bac degree, post-baccalaureate awesome. degree to get into medical school. And it wasn't until I graduated with that degree, and you probably understand this because you have children working as an academic. I had children as a student trying to get them through their transitions, get them through a, their elementary school, trying to get, figure out how I can take night classes, how I can take summer classes, all of the things. Well, it wasn't easy. I'm not complaining. It was a privilege because there are so many women that want to be able to go back to school and do the fun things that I got to do, but they can't. But it was hard. And I always say there's this phrase, I don't know if it's still used or not, but the whole first world problems, am I right, thing? I hate it, though, because yeah. it minimizes the problem. It's still a problem. There's and if you minimize the problem, you're just going to stuff it down and contribute to a stress load. There was stress, and it wasn't easy. Um, and, of course, my natural go hard or go home the overachiever that I am, I had to make it harder and <laughs> pursue yeah, so. biology and try to get into medical school. But by the time I graduated from my master's degree, I was 43. And I realized the return on investment for medical school is rapidly diminishing here. <laughs> and at that time, my youngest was almost, he was 18 
uh, almost 18. And he had gotten bit by the bodybuilding bug. And (laughs) he was five when I did my first competition. And I don't know how I've always had a gym in the garage and he got interested in it. Most boys, when they're in school, if they're skinny, decide they want to lift weights and get thick. And and he did that. And then so he decided he wanted to do bodybuilding and we found him a great coach. And it was a lot of fun getting him through that phase. But so cool. Taking him through the whole prep and the show and getting back into that environment after I had done it a couple of times felt like a lifetime ago, I got bit again. And, you know, I decided, (laughs) why am I trying, why am I thinking about medical school? Why Why am I doing all these other things when my real passion is fitness? That's so, it finally came full circle and I got back into fitness. I took about six weeks of just concentrated full-time job preparation to to sit for the certification exam, got my certification. But that master's degree in nutrition is what really opened the doors for a lot of things. But I was determined, my original intention, I'm very entrepreneurial in spirit, and my original intention was to work as a independent personal trainer, most likely doing most of my stuff remotely online. But I I knew I wanted to get some in-person experience or else I wouldn't be able to be, I wouldn't be able to give my clients a good, a, a true good coach. So I decided to get that in-person experience. And I tell you what, um, working in the big box gym, it was just a year and a half, two years, but I, I, I trained just about any type. I got, I was pretty in demand because of the master's degree. And yeah, my credentials are killer. And thank you. And it was definitely, there was one other trainer who had a, a master's degree and his was in Kines and he was also a sports and a strength and conditioning coach. And he, so his credentials really lined up with yours, except he didn't have the nutrition piece like mm-hmm. uh, you and I do. And, but we were both in pretty high demand, but he ended up going a more group co- coaching route. And I went more, I, I combined them. It was. <laughs> I did this in in school. I did my undergraduate research in another department than the department I was in. And then in, in my career, I started doing all the cross training too. I don't know. I guess I'm a bridge builder. <laughs> so I had to come back. I was, I was training clients. I had a, it was a part-time load of clients, but I also did group instruction and, and they're two different things with the group instruction is all led from the front. So you're doing the workout with the class and group right. coaching. The kind I did was doing the workout with the class because I had coached a spin class. And okay. so you, you're supposed you do it with them also. And I was training, doing my own strength training at the same time. I felt so unstoppable. I felt like Wonder Woman. I'm working out some days, twice a day, just because it's fun. And then I start realizing this was, I was 47, 48 okay. across that time. Changed my body again. My original transformation it was 2003. I was 28. During that time, I never gained all of the weight back, but I did go up and down. And there are seasons in life, so it's not going to be a focus. You're going to have to do other things, and you can't always focus on it. And whenever it's that tight control that that achieves that physique, that tight control, if you can't maintain it, is going to slip. And so it's not a sustainable result. And that's what I discovered, that my results were not sustainable. Whenever yeah. you start throwing all of these other stressors in my, in life, but I did get it back because I was working out twice a day because it was fun. <laughs> yeah, it's 
So did you have the same kind of like when you worked out that hard, did your body start fighting against you? It did. At any point? Yeah, it did. But it was in little things that I didn't recognize at that point. I started having Achilles heel pain and I thought it's my shoes. I need to get a new pair of shoes. I started noticing that the weekend wasn't long enough to recover from all of this. Mm -hmm. And it had been when I first started. And then in the final thing that I really, the thing that really got my attention was I threw my back out and um, my lower back had been a problem for a little while off and on. But this Mm -hmm. time I was, I had just, it was a Friday. I was recovering from my workouts. I had just done a boot camp. I was feeling great. I was changing my sheets on my bed, bent over and it just spasmed and I couldn't stand up straight. I couldn't sit down. I couldn't do anything without pain. And this was a Friday and I have a tendency to lean more towards holistic. I'm going to take care of this. There's things I can do at home to take care of it, make myself feel better. But I couldn't get into the positions that I knew would stretch out my back the best, the things that Mm -hmm. I know work for me. And I was driving a two-seater, a very low-to-the-ground sportster. I loved that car, loved it, but I couldn't get in and out of it (laughs) because, and I had to go to a staff meeting. And that was when I realized, okay, this is bad. Normal activities of my life. I I couldn't get to the bathroom by myself. I felt disabled. It was horrible. There was so much pain, but we finally ended up in an urgent care on a Saturday and I got a prescription for a pain medication, but it took two weeks to fully recover from that. I had to give my classes over to someone else in big box fitness. If you're not working, you're not making money. And it was only two weeks, but still it was enough for me to recognize that's a big deal. (laughs) So those were the first signs for me. The things that, that really uncovered perimenopause for me, I decided I was going to do a comeback and do another bodybuilding show in 2019. That uncovered everything I, um, prior when I had prepped for competitions, I never entered amenorrhea. My cycle never stopped. This one, it Mm -hmm. stopped for three months. And I think it was more, I think it was more the workload because I wasn't fully, I was definitely in low energy availability at that point. I think it was going to, it was probably a sign of red S, but I, my calories weren't as low as most athletes when they experience red S. It was hard. But you were at this time still at the gym. So were you still working at the gym? Okay. And And your calories were low because there you are walking all day. You're probably hitting 14 Mm -hmm. to 15,000 steps Mm -hmm. a day. Oh, and um, teaching exercise. And I was also teaching sports nutrition at the university. (laughs) High stress. Then we got. Right. Your workouts on top of your steps and your stress load mm-hmm. have to be just astronomical. So I'm sure your, your caloric intake. Yeah. Yours. Yeah. Low, quote unquote. Yeah. Wow. And at the and final, what? That's going to resonate with a lot of women because I feel like we get to these points in life and we don't see the side. Right? We just don't see all those tiny little warning signs. Especially with personality types that are similar to both of ours. Hard drivers. Do you know, by the way, what is our Enneagram? Have you done an Enneagram test before? No, I haven't. I'm be so excited to hear what yours <laughs> is. Because we're learning a lot about it right mm-hmm. now. And Enneagrams, you have them almost like an archetype for each one. And so I would be interested to hear yours. Yeah. At some point, we'll have to look at yours. 
But these personality types that drive through things that are over and straight up achievers, I feel like these females, and we all do this as as women and as mothers, we try to fight through everything and prove to everyone that we are everything that that we can be. Right. We want more. And I can be, I can do this. Whereas I feel like men have a better almost self-awareness and like, you know what? That's too much. I'm going to slow down. Maybe. Honestly, <laughs> people are joining on me as, as right. you know, as mom. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I used to take That's that scripture that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I would apply that to, I can do all things all at once. <laughs> all the time. All as the well time. as anybody else. It's all on, all the time. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> until, suddenly, so until suddenly I'm crying into a basket of laundry, watching TV at 1030 at night going, why am I not in bed? But I have a 430 a.m. workout. <laughs> I can't do all of notice. <laughs> exactly. Huh. We have all been there. The bodybuilding competition was, I have blamed it for a while on throwing me into perimenopause. But what you point out that I, there, there are these little signs that you start getting that in the rear view mirror, that's, that really makes sense. That's really what was happening. But I didn't really recognize them until after the show. And I'm coming back from it. You start eating like a normal human. You start not exercising as much. And at that point also, I decided I'm going to go ahead and quit this big box gym class and teaching job. And I'm no longer teaching at the university. It was a one semester gig. And I'm going to start my own business. And I'm mm -hmm. going to um, do in-person training all for myself. And it wasn't growing as fast as I needed it to. And the anxiety was just... When you're a hard driver and you're up against circumstances and obstacles and all of these things are pushing back on you, you start, it, 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 it doesn't make sense. Why is nothing working the way I want it to? And there's just this added layer of anxiety that your expectation adds to. And so I would find myself driving to clients to train them at their homes in tears the whole way because I'm not managing. I wasn't managing my stress. I wasn't managing my anxiety. And that was when I first started going, there's something up here. This is unusual because I've never really battled this at all. Like I said, back to my birth stories, it was a, a chemical depression. I wasn't sad. I wasn't having trouble emotionally with my mental health. And now all of a sudden I can't get out of this hole. I didn't know what was going on. So then we sell our house and relocate into Austin in at the end of February 2020, and, re and we downsized into an apartment. We had always had this bucket list item of well, what's it going to be like? We should we want to live in a condo downtown without kids. Our empty nest is going to be a a party nest or something. I don't know. <laughs> we just want it to be yeah. close to the close to the action. And so we rent an apartment close just to try it out. And then the world just shuts down, and yep. gyms close. And coffee shops close. If you're able to get into a restaurant, it's outside. Oh, and universities close. And so both kids came home and we're living on oh, what? Four adults in a two bedroom apartment. <laughs> and wow. coaching goes online. Classes go online. There were people that were able to make fortunes doing Zoom yoga. And yeah. I was just unable to make that jump because I didn't have the space for it. I can perform, right. put a camera in front of me. I'm a ham, but 
it was not, it just didn't work because I didn't have the space. It wouldn't have been fair to these, yeah. this, this guy that's trying to finish his architecture degree from home. And it just, oh, right. Yeah. That's another first world problem, although it impacted the whole world. 2020 stole a lot from all of us and helping Nathan to um, work through that and acknowledge it was super important for me to acknowledge it. My my coaching business took a hit. Um, We had all these fun travel plans and they took a hit. I know I'm preaching to the choir. I know everyone had an experience. So, but at that point, that was when I started Noticing that I'm not managing my mental health well. I'm not managing stress. Um, and cortisol is just out of control. There's so much regulation issues happening here. I had ended up having to have surgery on a toe, which a toe. It sounds, what's the the big deal? It was the recovery was horrendous trying to get past that. Oh, and I throw my back out again while I'm in a boot. (laughs) Thank you very little 2020. But in the, on the plus of that, tw- when my perimenopause became evident, when the brain fog got bad again, when the insomnia got even worse, whenever I'm not recovering from workouts, I started adding belly fat unlike I ever had before. That's when I started going, oh, this is hormonal. And then I you know, yeah. did a little percur- precursory dig in the research. I start realizing there are... In just a few years, there's going to be 2.4 billion women impacted by the menopause transition around the world. What kind of services are there for them? And are there ways to get past this? Are there ways to that? Are there things that they can do for themselves that we can do for ourselves that don't involve pharmaceuticals and doctors? Because let's be real, doctors aren't really listening. It's better helping. Yeah, yeah, no. It's, it's better now than it used to be. Thank yes. goodness most of us are getting past the Women's Health Initiative back in the early 2000s, but it's it's still not great. Right. Every woman has the experience of getting their blood work done because they feel awful, they don't have energy, they can't keep up with their work, and the results come back all within range. Everything's fine. You're so, fine. Yeah, so go home. Yeah, but... You're good. You're good. I don't know what's wrong. I can't diagnose it. So it's non-emergent, <laughs> which is something I heard. I was having heart palpitations last year. Last summer, I was having heart palpitations and I couldn't figure out what was wrong. So I ended up in the emergency room and the doctor says, this test came back negative. This came back negative. This came back negative. So you're free to go. And it's, But I'm sitting here having heart palpitations. What's wrong? He says, I don't know what's wrong, but it's non-emergent. It's no oh. longer an emergency case, so I can't treat you. Okay, <laughs> bye. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. No. Pretty much. And then since then, Oprah Winfrey, who has this massive platform, has come out and said, "This was my problem too." And I was on. So, I saw so many doctors. I was on so many prescriptions, and no one thought to say, "Oh, you know what? This is a sign of perimenopause." Okay. So it was for me too. I had that same experience. I went to a cardiologist. I wore the Holter monitor for two weeks. I did a stress test and it came back inconclusive because I have a low normal blood pressure and I've had issues. Most athletes do. You have low resting heart rate, low um, blood pressure. And I've had some syncopes. I've passed out with it in the morning because probably overhydrated, all the stuff that you learn as you go. They just, they didn't want to put me on beta blockers. Thank goodness they didn't want to put me on beta blockers, but yes, right? I had to do a heart catheter to rule out blockage. 
And when they when he gets in there, he says, this is textbook. These are beautiful. This is the clearest arteries I have ever seen. And that was when I finally go, okay, this is yeah. not anything else. This is menopause. This is perimenopause. It has turned my life upside down for two years and no more. I'm not going to do this anymore. So I did everything. Uh, all of the stuff that I've been learning to help other women, to help my clients, I started finally applying more to myself. <laughs> you just Amazing, right? When you finally <laughs> been to the term of room, this is for me too. Yeah, yeah. It's so weird. Do what I say, not as I do. But <laughs> right, right. But we all know that. Mm, so I finally just realized that if I'm experiencing this, if I'm a scientist and I'm a researcher, and I'm a fitness person, and I'm experiencing this, and this dearth of knowledge that it's so hard to get to the data, to the stuff that can solve the problems, then what about everyone else? Why aren't we talking about this? You know, and I'm such an avid podcast listener. I'm a huge fan. Uh, it's, I'll, I'll listen to things for fun and for education. And then I realized no one's talking about this in this way. So, yeah. That's what we're here for. That's we're we're going to talk about it. Yes, I love <laughs> it. And I love that introductory of just all of the things that you have experienced that finally point to these symptoms of perimenopause that are just so elusive, right? right. And we talk about this a lot in research that the perimenopause is just this elusive beast. You can't even through blood metrics, through survey data, there is not a validated way to predict perimenopause in women in research. And so I think that it's important that we start talking about it. And really, I want to highlight my age demographic where I'm moving into, I'm about to move into my 40s. It's time. I already have friends in perimenopause that haven't been diagnosed perimenopause. And a lot of those are lifestyle factors. A lot of those things are things that I probably could have said, based on the way that you're living, I can see your hormonal profile is going to start to take yeah. very soon. But the things that I don't think that we are alerted to, and that obviously the medical system isn't keen on these metrics or these early signs right. of perimenopause. So I think it's an important conversation for my generation and even Absolutely. to lean into yours and say, okay, help me to understand what can we learn from you so that we can really start to drive awareness yeah. around it so that we don't have to suffer as badly. Exactly. Yeah. Part of my um, life mission now is too many women in my generation didn't learn a thing about this from their mothers because yes. their mothers didn't learn about it. It was a dirty little secret that women went through in silence. Even if they did have a group of girlfriends to talk about things, there was just so much silence. Mothers weren't telling their daughters about it. Yes. And mothers and school assemblies all tell, tell your young daughter about your changing body. We just finally watched the movie, the adaptation of the book that my generation grew up on. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. <laughs> and I was so cute, so beautiful. They, everyone has that school assembly. Everyone knows what to look for with the period and with the training bras and all of those things. But there is no school assembly for this second 
puberty known as perimenopause. There isn't yeah. a what to expect when you're perimenopausal book. <laughs> so you're not. And I don't believe it's adequately celebrated either. I feel it's like true. it is an amazing transition. And uh, you're right. Almost like a second awakening, yes. a, a second puberty, moving into a new stage of life. And because it is so elusive, because it is just not talked about, it's not, it's absolutely not celebrated right. adequately. And I think that hopefully we can also bring some awareness to the fact that there's a lot of good things yeah. that can happen after that. Yeah, yeah. Changing the conversation around it is so important because there's this raging debate right now. Menopause is a disease or menopause is not a disease. It's a natural phase of life. And that's where I land. This is a natural phase of life. Yes, my hormones are changing. Yes, my fertility is changing. I talked to a woman recently who does this medical training program for hormone providers that her her mission, the what they do, her the whole goal is to start a woman's cycle up again. Wow. So she's having women that are 60 years old with milligram uh, 400 units of estrogen running around in their bodies, convincing their uterus that they still need to they still need to bleed once a month. And it's just there are there is no there's no biological reason for that. There is no fertility there. There's not an egg, but yeah. their skin looks better. <laughs> you know. I, I just, okay. to each their own. Every woman should have the right to choose what they do in their treatment, in their transition. Yes. I have always wanted to do this, to do what I can for myself without medical intervention or with right. minim, minimal med medical intervention. Um, I know that there are things that I can do with my fitness, with my lifestyle that empowers me to take care of my own health. And that kind of goes back to this is going to be a long haul to stand on my own two feet, but it's a battle worth having. I don't really want to submit to another form of patriarchy. That may sound a little strange, but medicine has been a very patriarchal system. They're in the 1920s. This isn't that long ago, 100 years ago. The clitoris disappeared from Grey's Anatomy. It's just yeah. gone. And it didn't we don't need that. And it didn't get elucidated again until the 90s when a female medical me. student, I think she was a physical therapy student actually in Australia, finds out, hey, wait a minute. I know this body part exists. I have one. <laughs> Why can't I study it? <laughs> and so she elucidated yeah. it. Thank you. But well that and it's it's no wonder that we're not understanding the hor the hormone flux and the pulsatile nature of the cycle. And it's no wonder that we're not embracing the cycle when we are in a society that is built around the male hormone cycle. And I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool radical feminist. I'm not. My, I'm so grateful for the sacrifices of generations before me that were. Absolutely. If it weren't for that, then I can't, I couldn't do the things that I do. You and I wouldn't have advanced degrees. But at the same time, I'm proud of being a woman. I love being feminine. And I think that there's a lot of, um, power derived from that. And I think that there are, there's importance in the genders, in the sexes. There are different things that I have strengths in than my husband does and vice versa. That, and Absolutely. without that, we are not a working partnership. So if I decided yes. to be him, 
or he decided to be me, then we're missing something. And that's that's the way we have always lived our lives. That's the way we've always worked as a, a married couple, as a family. But I'm still going to call out stupid stuff like medical patriarchy. It's just, <laughs> it impacts entire society, all of our society. I'm just recently, the fact I floated earlier about the, the blind auditions in orchestras, and that's the only way that women became part of the m- music scene. That was something I read in a book called Invisible Women that was written in 2018 about data science and how women are basically discriminated against just because of the way that data is reported in every area of life. It's a valuable read, Invisible Women. So pick it up. (laughs) No, that sounds like a good one. Because I've experienced that a lot, right, in exercise science, even research. And most of the time it just begins, wow, this is... These, it's too complicated to add women into this because when we do, it makes our study more expensive mm-hmm. because we then have to understand these pulsatile hormones throughout the cycle. When are we testing them? And when are we going to have differences in hormonal profiles that we have to control for in order to do a certain intervention? Man, it, I can understand, right? Mm-hmm. And the one lens, I can see where, as especially a male who may not understand hormone cycles, mm-hmm appropriate right right and right. hasn't ex- never experienced a hormonal cycle uh, yeah can sit there and go wow hormones are high here and low here but but this could happen and this can happen and it could absolutely change more mm-hmm. hormonal acts and the effects of it so i can see through one lens wow it's really hard but i can also see that we've got to increase the awareness we've got to make sure that women and their hormones are more visible so that we can educate others better so that we can get even better peer review mm-hmm. and better analysis of some of these um, research studies. Absolutely, so, absolutely. So it's, I think it's so important yeah. too. Oh, and just to be clear, I'm not blaming any person because of their gen- because of their sex or, or their position or anything like that. I do think it's a matter of practicality that, or it's been called that. This is going to, like you said, it'll make the this the study more expensive that's why women yeah. have been women have been excluded from a lot of the research because of the cycle because it is a confounding factor because it makes things harder makes things more expensive and surely we can they're people right they have most of the most of the parts are the same so surely we can just apply what we learn in men to women it's right. just it's been a, a false assumption that has caused more harm than has helped and i'm not I don't think any person is to blame. I think a system is to blame. And that's what we're working against. Yeah. Yeah. But we met in the course of all of this at a sports nutrition conference that you were hosting at your school. And I remember being just blown away by all of the knowledge and the research, because here I am coming up in this research. Not It's really hard to find the stuff. I'm finding some stuff, but it's, it's really hard to find it. And I'm, but like I said, a bridge between normal lay people that don't even think about fitness necessarily, the kind that I coach. And then here's me. I'm still a lay person, but I'm a professional. And then here's academia. And to be in this place where this research is being not only done, but being celebrated, it was just, it was so fun. But we didn't meet till the end of the day. And so by that time, I yes. was brain fried. You can imagine I gave you the best impression. <laughs> you did, <laughs> actually. So I loved meeting you both at, at the conference for sure. So 
this conference um, is at my university. I'm at a small D3 university um, and absolutely love it here. But I um, have colleagues here and then um, outside of my university who are um, in the the trenches, I would say, of, of research. So there are one and how research works is R1 institution, research one institution. You're paid to do research pretty much. And then you, you teach a little bit, but they buy out their teaching loan and they get to do research. And most of those are funded by places like the NIH, the DOD, okay. big grants, big research. And so thankfully, a lot of my colleagues were willing to come here to do a, a conference here at, at EMHB, right in Baylor in, in Delton, Texas. They all came to our, our small town here from just big name R1 universities to deliver their research for a Texas ACSM and then the International Society of Sport Nutrition Symposium. So it was awesome. And so I had a friend, Abby Smith Ryan, who's an amazing researcher for women's physiology, is one of my good friends. And she was presenting on some female physiology research that she had been doing. And we, at the end, they asked the question since I talked a little bit about, hey, what are you doing to combat or be able to research women who are in perimenopause? Because she and I are both entering into this elusive window. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And waiting. So I know that is definitely on her radar as well. So we discussed that. And I think that's what really triggered Corey and, and Wes to say, oh, this, we may need to visit with this person more. So afterwards, I do remember, I think I, Wes grabbed me first mm-hmm. and introduced himself. And then Corey promptly after. Corey remembers it from her side as being maybe a brain foggy oh, day. I couldn't or, complete a sentence. <laughs> it's not pretty. <laughs> it's so funny. And I think that coming from a very articulate woman, a very intelligent woman, that she probably felt like she was having an off day. But to someone from... The outside looking in, she came off absolutely all those things. Very articulate, very put together, uh, very knowledgeable. And I, there was nothing in our interaction that made me go, wow, that lady's, that lady is crazy. She can't even put a sentence together. So I think that's important from the outside looking in that I knew immediately that they had a lot of care, that they were very interested in learning more about menstrual cycle. And they told me just a little bit about some projects that they were working on. And I immediately just went, yes, let, I would love to visit with you. I think I was, what, eight, am I eight months? Yes. That's yes. Awesome. Maybe so that was, was why like, you didn't sure. notice the brain fog, because <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole nother set. <laughs> I was turning through Rylan at that point, too. <laughs> full teaching, and research load, and, and uh, two at home and one on the way. Yeah. Um, as we discussed challenging mm-hmm. but yeah I, I didn't notice that and there, i have never noticed from my side i know there are days at course okay i'm having trouble finding words today or i'm having trouble with my brain fog today mm-hmm. but it's never been something that i have said whoa corey's got brain fog she's not with it today well, that's she's, comforting she's always with it today. <laughs> that is definitely comforting thank you for telling me that and when i'm coaching clients i've fallen back on the phrase man words are hard because like <laughs> You got to do something in the moment to explain why you can't remember this body part that you're working. (laughs) I think I have a a mentor and a professor here now that uh, he was my mentor in undergrad. And he is one of the most brilliant men in the world. So he's a biochemistry background. Gene goes all the way down gene expression level for muscle physiology. And he's just, I completely adore him. And he is so intelligent that he will stop and get lost in his brain for a little bit 
and out of sheer respect, right? You don't ever. Right. What is that? What are you trying to talk about? What is it? You let him find that word because it's going to blow your mind. And so it always reminds me that it's okay. That silence is just fine. And it's okay to stop and find your word. And because it, again, as females, we don't want to ever be seen as unintelligent right. or not being able to find a word because we struggle with that already, right? right? We're the, the fairer sex. We don't, we're admitting that we're not as intelligent, right? right? So I think we fight those stereotypes sometimes, but I'm always reminded that I think everybody struggles that with words sometimes. And if you just can give space in a conversation, I think it's important to, to try to let someone else have that space oh, yeah. to, so to catch up or to let them let you find your word is important. Nice. Because brain fog and word salad are <laughs> part of the whole suite of symptoms of perimenopause, and it's one that I've been experiencing for a few years, and that's probably something we'll talk about a lot um, as we go through these conversations. Um, why don't we discuss a little bit about um, other things that we'll talk about? What, what else can we expect, you think, from uh, can we just talk about this? Oh, man. So I know that that we have talked about navigating motherhood in some of these situations. So leaning back on on the two of us, some of our strengths, I, I definitely think navigating motherhood and hormones yes. and work, work-life balance yes. and understanding how your exercise and your nutrition and your work-life balance. We've talked about the stress mm-hmm. load and how all of those things pull together into one. Right. And they actually all impact your hormonal profile. Mm-hmm. They all in, impact your, your mental fortitude, if you will, and what you can withstand. I would think that the very backgrounds between the two of us, it's, I think it's so fun that because even though we are two separate, right. Um, and absolutely don't have the exact same experience, we do have a bunch of big pillars within our, our life story that are, I think are going to help us to be able to connect and relate some of our stories to other For people sure. too. So I'm excited to continue to do that everywhere from bodybuilding as a competitor as well to just running the mill of a, per- a life, personal training yeah. lifestyle yeah. and how easy it is to run yourself into the ground. No, and kidding. I think lots of women experience that too, of just how hard can I push myself right. until I right. get out. And I feel like our our connection might be a microcosm of a lot of women, especially in our society. And I can't say for other cultures necessarily because I don't have that experience. But just think we we met almost randomly. I looked up this ISSN seminar and I was fascinated by it. I was looking into getting certification with that body and dragged my husband with me on a Saturday to this little bitty university 45 minutes to an hour away from us that we have to leave the house before seven to get there and then we just we randomly meet you and it really wasn't random as far as my my philosophy my life view goes but it was to think that we have so many commonalities in just that one in that one little random meeting that have come out in this working relationship there there's bound to be other women that have a lot of the same like you said pillars which shows me almost as almost as concretely as scientific evidence shows me validity to different theories and to different experiences. So it's not necessarily 
a random controlled trial. It's not necessarily anything that's been, it's published in a journal, but it is, I think that it's a really important to recognize the life experiences of people. And that's part of what we're, what I want to talk about in this podcast, because we have such a life shared experience and women through generations have had a shared experience. Then because it's true in our experience, then it's true. And and it drives so much more. For sure. And I think it's important also to talk about, like you mentioned earlier, how what I am experiencing now can be a forerunner, I guess. It can be, it can foretell things for you and for your friend group, for your girlfriends, because I wasn't as prepared and it wasn't my mom's fault. She wants to talk about everything long before I want to. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> She's like, I asked her a, a basic question when I was six and she thought it was time for the talk. And I was so <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> she was too, yeah. which is part of why it was uncomfortable. <laughs> but, <laughs> and that's been the case all the way down through every different phase of life. And ready to tell you. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love you, mom. That's, I think that's a big driver and a big motivator for me too, is I want to see other women prepared. And I, that's been part of my professional motivation. And this isn't rocket science. Fitness and nutrition isn't necessarily rocket science, but the internet, the fitness industry, so many voices have complicated it for people who are experts in other areas and don't have time to think about all this. They rely on us right. to bring them truth. They rely on us to bring them the scientific evidence and to be able to show them how to apply it to their lives. And the goal of can we just talk about this is to actually talk about it in ways that people bring things that people really can apply to their lives, whatever age they are. Yeah, and maybe they could have these aha moments. You know, I know that you and I have both had throughout our career. Oh man, mm-hmm. that was a sign mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. And I wish this. I wish I had talked about it with a girlfriend. I wish I had let someone else know and brought someone else into the conversation so that they could have helped yeah, me through. Yeah, for sure. Or we could have known. And so hopefully we end up being that girlfriend that shares with you and maybe helps you realize what's happening in your own body. It even makes you feel like you're not alone. Yes. In experience. Yes. So important because it is a shared experience, because there are so many commonalities and because knowing that you're not alone and knowing that this is a normal phase of life impacts the severity of your symptoms and impacts the experience altogether that's important as well and that's what you can expect from can we just Mm. talk about this (laughs) i love and and i love that can we just talk about this (laughs) (laughs) yes ma'am okay so next week can we just talk about big rocks We'll just talk about the things that you really need to do to get in and to have in place to make um, big changes in your health and in your fitness. And it's not the little stuff. And it might surprise you. I think so. I think they'll be very surprised by some of the things that don't really think impact it. But overall picture, it's a big Yes, yes. Thanks so much for talking about it with me. I sure needed the time we spent together, and I hope it left you feeling good, too. If you enjoyed the episode, please like, subscribe, and share it with your friends to bring other girlfriends into the circle. And hey, let's do it again next week. 
Episodes drop every Monday. And you might even find a quick chat Friday every now and then. Don't, don't, don't.